I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Gentlemen, it's good to be back. It's the day after the second Super Tuesday. So this is the Michigan Super Tuesday. And it uh, looks like Joe Biden has taken a commanding lead. What implications does this have for the trade debate? Well, it certainly looks over, okay, at least from my point of view. Not yet in delicate count right? because of proportional allocation. But if you look at the remainder of the schedule after uh, Vice President Biden's win in Michigan, you have to ask which Senator Sanders won in 2016. Beating Hillary. Beating Hillary. So after that result, then you look at the schedule ahead, uh, you have to ask yourself, when is Senator Sanders likely to win another primary? Right. Maybe not till sometime in April. Wisconsin is one that he might win, but the playing field in terms of states holding primaries has shifted very much to the benefit of Vice President Biden. Bernie even lost Idaho, which some projections had him you know, close or ahead. So it looks like it's insurmountable at this point. There are two lessons for trade that I got out of the Michigan primary. One is that I think the anti-NAFTA argument may be out of gas. Bernie really pushed that in Michigan. He talked about Biden having supported it. I mean, this is a 25-year-old issue. And the reality is we don't have NAFTA anymore. We have USMCA. The AFL-CIO endorsed it. More Democrats voted for it in the House than the Republicans. It, it's not really the same issue that it was in 1994, 1995, and, and 1996. But, you know, basically, I think Bernie's beating a dead horse. And it clearly was not persuasive in Michigan. There's never one reason why you win or lose an election. But uh, he put a lot of, you know, a lot of eggs in that particular basket in that state, where, which was the obvious state to do it. Uh, and it, it didn't seem to resonate. I think people, for the most part, have reconciled themselves to North American market integration. We've had it for 25 years, and the world hasn't come to an end. And I think there's not the same level of unhappiness about the new NAFTA as there was about the old one. The other lesson, uh, which is probably more important- The new NAFTA, also known as USMACA. USMACA, yes. <laughs> or Kuzma now, because the Canadians are considering yes. it. Yeah. The other lesson is that it may well be now, if it's going to be Biden, then I think we have a trade debate in the campaign. Because in the general his, election. In the general yeah. election. Right. Because his worldview and Trump's worldview are very different. Biden is a multilateralist. He believes in institutions. He believes in rule of law. He believes in the same stuff that every president since Franklin Roosevelt has believed in, except for the current one. And there's very clear contrast between him and, and Trump on this. And Trump will, will, will use that because he's proud of his trade policy and fixated on it. So you can be sure he'll make it an issue of it. But that means Biden's going to have to be prepared to argue his, his side. I was going to say, doesn't Biden, who is popular with unions and popular with auto workers, doesn't Biden have to keep the auto workers happy? Yes. Especially in a state like Michigan, of course. Yes, and, and he, Ohio. he has to figure out uh, a way to square that circle. And frankly, so far, none of the Democrats have really done a very good job of that. Uh, I mean, I think the, the hard line, all these agreements are terrible, uh, Sanders line is not resonating. And public opinion shows that, you know, the bulk of Democrats, auto workers probably accepted, but the bulk of Democrats are pro-trade and pro-trade pro, pro agreement. So the Biden dilemma is how do you keep the base? How do you get all these all the millennials, all the uh, the younger folks that think trade is good without losing 
organized labor that's very nervous about their jobs. So far, all they've been able to do is say that, you know, Trump's causing a lot of collateral damage, which is true. His policies are failing, which you can debate. Uh, and he needs to build coalitions, which Biden has a very good story on because that's what he spent his life doing. They still are going to have to come up with a coherent policy. So they have to talk about what would I negotiate? Right. Probably Europe and UK because that doesn't raise labor and environmental issues. Probably, uh, you know, Biden will talk about how to get back into TPP, not for trade reasons, but for how do we counter China? You know, that will be the argument. The foreign policy argument. The foreign policy argument. The dilemma for the Democrats is actually the same dilemma for Trump, which is on China. The Chinese are not going to give Biden any more on China than they're going to give Trump. So he's going to have to figure out how to deal with them, just like Trump is going to have to figure out how to yeah, deal with them. I think you're right, Bill. At this point, the vice president is going to have to be able to say what he'd do differently than uh, President Trump. So that will be the interesting contrast. It won't be enough just to say you're doing it wrong. N that won't be enough. Now, on anything, by the way, whether, you know, whatever the current policies are, you've got to say what you're going to do differently. One other point on Sanders is he came in with a real weakness in Michigan, which is single-payer health care, right. which is a, a big downgrade for any UAW member. Any yeah, they've member. got the best insurance got, there is. Right. And so that was, that was a strike against him. But I, Bill, I think you're exactly right that he was stuck in the past talking about an agreement that that either people think is in the past or have made peace with. Um, and look, elections are about a shared vision of the future. They're not about what happened 25 years ago. Yeah, and he's, I mean, it, what, it, it reflects, I think, exactly what you said, that he's looking backwards, yeah. not forwards. And I think in an election, uh, that, that doesn't pay off. Especially in an election of septuagenarians. Well, yes. And I mean, uh, but uh, Reagan demonstrated that you can do this. Yes. I mean, Reagan uh, was not for him, but Reagan demonstrated that you can look ahead even yeah. as you're old. Yeah. Right. And you can have a vision it's and you can really articulate that vision. So that's what people Absolutely. believe is their now, future. Now, did you hear Biden last night when you should have been in bed? I was in bed. I was well, in bed. I heard part of it. And I have to say he was more eloquent than I have ever heard him. And he talked about the Constitution he talked about. I actually uh, may have been watching The Bachelor. It was the finale last night, so I have to, you know. No, I, no. Would you I like to it. tell us who won? <laughs> well, no one won. No one won. It was. It was. It, it ended in lots of tears, lots of arguments. You know, but the usual. But hey, I digress. I'm sorry. So, what did Biden have to say? He talked about the Constitution. He talked about what Americans are. He contrasted. He said, "That's not who we are. That's not what our country is." Uh, we can hold ourselves to a higher standard of behavior, and he articulated much more of a vision of how of American leadership, American global leadership. In some sense, somebody's going to say, "Well, that's the same as W. It's the same as Biden. It's the uh, same as Obama. It's the same as Clinton." Yeah, it is, but it's still. A, but it's a not going to be enough. And it was phrased it, it, eloquently in a general election against a president who you know does have policies mm -hmm. and does have very clear ideas of policy. You know, contrasting leadership style, uh, you know, and who we are as Americans, it, it can't be enough, right? It, it only worked once. Right. Warren G. Harding and return to normalcy. Right. But that was after Wilson and a, and a world war. And not a successful presidency on Wilson's part. And Harding himself was unsuccessful. But it's the one time it actually won an election. He does have to articulate a program for the future. And a contrast. Just factoid on the side. When I ran the National Foreign Trade Council... The National Foreign Trade Council is located at the same address where the Teapot Dome scandal was hatched in the Harding administration. And I often thought in the afternoon, I am sitting right where they decided to cheat all the taxpayers. This is a fun in fact In 1923, 
Not the same building, but the same uh, address. So I don't think anything rubbed off, or I hope not. <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope not. Back to the unions in Michigan, the auto workers specifically. This is a key constituent. And Bill, you described the dilemma that Biden's going to have. Biden needs to win Michigan. He needs to win Ohio. He needs that key votes. What is he going to have to do to thread this needle? Well, first, Ohio is next week. So we'll find out, uh, for, as is Illinois, which is Right. And I mean, that's a primary, though. But looking ahead to the general election, when he crafts his trade policy, and Biden has had some you know, pretty clear views on trade over the years, the trade debate, as we've been discussing it over the past year plus, has clearly been involving. Has Biden evolved on this? He's not there yet. Right. If you look at what he's written and uh, plug here, CSIS has done a piece on Biden's trade policy. Yeah. My research fellow, Jack Caperell, did it, and you can get it at CSIS.org. Yep. When he writes about trade policy, he writes about it in the context of larger foreign policy. It's an instrument of American leadership. It's a way that we promote rule of law. It's a way that we promote freedom and democracy and peace. And he looks at it as part of the bigger picture. That's probably not what's going to sell in states where there's been a lot of job loss. Uh, he has now started to do the standard democratic mantra of, I'm not going to negotiate anything that doesn't deal with worker rights, that doesn't have workers at the table, that doesn't deal with the environment, the standard you know thing that everybody else has. He has not yet tried to put this in a coherent policy framework. Uh, he can. It's certainly possible. I think he could talk about what negotiations he would pursue. And there's a number mm -hmm. that don't raise these issues. They're not going to be as controversial. Um, and he can talk about enforcement, which Democrats are really good at talking about, which is for which there's a lot of enthusiasm. He's still going to have to grapple with the plant closing problem and foreigners stealing, stealing my jobs. Right. And it won't be enough to say we're going to do what the president's doing, only we're going to implement better. Which has been the line so far. Yes. And it also won't be enough to say we're going to take care of the people that are the victims of, of this. That's the right answer. I mean, it's a good answer. But politically, it's like offering the coroner's inquest. Uh, yes. You know, and say, yes, it's burial expenses. Burial, burial expenses is what uh, the steel workers used to say. It'll be on the Democratic platform. Yeah. But I don't think you're going to see him talking about it. All right. Well, not to turn dark and into gallows humor here, but speaking of foreigners, you know, it's not humorous, but we're dealing with coronavirus here in America. It's a global thing, comes from China. How is that affecting trade policy? In recent days, we've seen that China's exports have plummeted by 17% as coronavirus has continued to take its toll. Um, what about it, guys? Maybe one way to look at this is in terms of, of supply chains and the way things are made worldwide. Because when it comes to excess capacity and slack, both our health infrastructure and the, the supply chain that produces product face similar challenges with, with uh, the coronavirus. Most economies that are succeeding, so South Korea and Taiwan are the examples, in the face of an infectious disease, what they're trying to do from a policy standpoint is slow the rate of, of infection to the point where it's always below the maximum capacity of your, in, your health infrastructure. In other words, when a, an infectious disease of any sort overwhelms healthcare infrastructure, uh, then a lot more people suffer. 
And so the, the, the whole notion of, of social, uh, social distancing and those kinds of things are mainly geared. Look, look what you have is a, is a virus that is, that is at least twice as contagious as the flu from what we know, has higher mortality than the flu. We don't know exactly how much higher, but higher. It's a dangerous infectious disease. So what you're trying to do is slow the spread as you ramp up your health care capacity to the extent you can, uh, you don't overwhelm it at any point in time. Now, the same thing is happening on the production of products because what happens is products are produced worldwide, including in, in international supply chains, for an expected demand level. And when demand goes up, like for N95 masks or at the moment, toilet paper, or whatever it might be, uh, whatever people uh, want to stockpile, it takes some time to respond to that. And of course, Nobody builds a supply no, – no customer it will tolerate a supply chain that has excess capacity because the customer has to pay for it and they don't want to. So supply chains are A, highly specialized and B, tend not to have a lot of excess capacity. So that's the challenge and bo so both our supply chain production infrastructure worldwide is stressed and our healthcare system will be stressed. And it's all how we manage those stresses. That's conceptually what's going on. What's going on right now, I, th I agree with Scott. I think what we see happen is a huge number of people in Washington have taken to heart the, the Rahm Emanuel quote, never waste a good crisis. People are making long lists of, of things that they want. Uh, and One politically? Yes. Uh, and they're the same things they've always wanted. But this is an excuse to renew them. There's a whole group of people who say we need to lower tariffs in order to facilitate maintenance of supply chains, which is not entirely wrong. But the people that are saying that are the same people that were against the tariffs from the beginning. And they're just using this as an opportunity to say the tariffs are bad. Uh, look at the tax debate. Uh, Trump has floated various ideas, as have others. Everybody with you know a, a favorite uh, a favorite tax gimmick is crawling out of the woodwork again to yes. say if there's going to be a tax bill, put this. You know, one. I want I want to be on board the train. Mm -hmm. So that's not an unhealthy development, uh, but it's not always being done for let's say, pure motives. They're playing the coronavirus card. They are. And the classic one is is the one we were reading about today, which is Peter Navarro talking about, uh, you know, trying to secure domestic supply chains for pharmaceuticals and, I guess, medical equipment. This is interesting. So this is because the United States is dependent on China for drug manufacturing, for a lot of our medicine. Yes, more There's than 70% of a lot of ingredients. 70% of our ingredients to our medicines are coming from China, and some, including Navarro, believe that is unnecessary national security risk, and they believe that it's a bad idea for America to be dependent on China in that way. Yes. And so they're using this as an opportunity to lessen the United States or China's chokehold on America's drugs, in their words. There's two issues. One, are they right? But first of all, it gives us a chance to, to talk about the light switch problem, which right. we've talked about before. Navarro's idea seems to be, okay, next week we'll stop buying from China and we'll be able to buy all this stuff from Americans. Well, we can't buy all this stuff from America. The capacity doesn't exist. We'll have to build it. But if you ask Americans, should we uh, be buying 70% of the ingredients for our drugs from China, you know, I think you'd have a very high number of them saying no, okay, and the, then and the administration the, knows that. The next exactly. poll question is, would you pay 25% more for pharmaceuticals made in the United States? Right. And the answer to that is also no. Well, yeah, okay. Probably. But, but that's the, the trade-off, all right? So what we have to do is manage this thing sensibly. Uh, one of the first things that I noticed, the administration has finally found some tariffs that they think are bad for Americans. 
face masks, uh, some medical devices, which had been part of the, th the Section 301 tariffs against China, which they now want to suspend. All right. So we're going to get rid of those tariffs. President Miller's idea here is to get rid of them all. Let's, if we're going to suspend the payroll tax, let's suspend all tariffs on all industrial goods. President? President Miller. President Miller. Yes, because I would President never care. President Scott Miller, that's, the trade guy. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just. <laughs> I thought I heard that yeah. correctly. Yes. I would vote for him over Trump. But I'd vote for him over just about anybody. But that, that would be a plan. And what it would do, what you do is for the same reason you're suspending the payroll tax to put a little cash in the economy and liquidity to help demand, what you're doing is helping supply. You're giving supply chain managers and logistics people more choices. Uh, and you're taking a barrier out of the way because what you have a problem with is shortages, all right? And and you've got very talented people dealing with shortages, so take one of the barriers out of the way. If, frankly, suspending tariffs is a, a lot less revenue loss than suspending the payroll tax. But that that leaves us with Navarro's fundamental view, which is it's the same issue. It's it's a security issue, and it's the same issue that surrounds Huawei. You know, do he does not want the United States to, to be dependent on other countries for important stuff. Uh, he particularly doesn't want them to be dependent on China. I don't know if anybody's asking him how he feels about us being dependent on Japan or the UK, but I think he'd probably say that wouldn't be very good either. It, be, autarky is good. We should make everything here. That's a recipe for no growth. Uh, and it's a recipe for economic disaster, but it's very compelling, you know, because it's it's a question you ask. If you ask people, are you really happy make, knowing that all your pills come from China? Yeah, and they're going to say self, no. Self-sufficiency polls really well until you realize the costs associated with it, okay, which is how we got to the situation we're in now. So there are some things you can do. There are some there are some carrots you can provide. Uh, Bill and I were talking before the show. There used to be a provision in, in income tax law called Section 936, which incentivized a lot of pharmaceutical precursor and pharmaceutical production in Puerto Rico for, from U.S. pharmaceutical companies. You got a tax break if you moved to Puerto Rico. Yeah, there were, there were, I forget the specifics of it, but it, but it resulted in a tremendous amount of production being being invested in, in uh, Puerto Rico, and they became a, quite expert at uh, pharmaceutical productions. The ta that provision expired. So you could you could look for ways like that to over time, not not in today's crisis, but over the next three to five years, as you're as you're revisiting what would make a supply chain that you wanted to rely on. If you want more of it in the U.S., then create the incentives to do that. Uh, otherwise, convince consumers to pay more for for what they get. One of the ironies is that nothing that Navarro is talking about is going to make any difference in the current crisis. Right. Even if he prevails, even if we put in Buy America rules for pharmaceuticals, you know, this stuff is all regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. Think people need to be certified. Oh, it just Production needs to be shortages. stood up. Yeah. You know, if you're talking about the next pandemic five years from now, yeah. we might be ready. But nothing he's talking about is going to make any difference in the short term. It's just taking advantage of the crisis. All right. So all this begs the question, though, the overarching question, could coronavirus threaten the United States economy even more than China, China's economy? I think that's highly unlikely. Uh, first, look, we, we have a, a far more modern, sophisticated health system, right? And that's a major advantage. So will people get sick in the United States? Yes. People have died from this disease. So, uh, and it, it particularly affects the elderly, people with respiratory problems. We know statistically what's going on. People will become ill, but I think we're much better equipped because of advanced medicine to handle it. Okay. Second, steps have been taken to slow the spread and to keep basically the disease 
progression uh, in a place where the medical systems can handle it, I think we have a much better chance of succeeding there, keeping that curve from spiking and overloading the health system. That, for me, is that's what you absolutely want to avoid in these kinds of situations. Because once your health system is overwhelmed, a lot of people who would have may have recovered from the disease uh, may not because they couldn't get treatment. The beds were all full. Medicines were all gone. So I think we're in a much better position to deal with it just because we have a sort of a, one of the most advanced systems. And by the way, uh, a recent survey, I believe it was conducted under the auspices of the WHO, put the United States' health system as the most likely to successfully deal with a crisis like this. So, so I think there's reason for hope, uh, but we have to we have to really do a good job of managing uh, as the managing disease progression to the extent in a large, diverse, federalized society we can do that. But are you guys worried about the implications of a slowdown in uh, the U.S. services industry? Already happening. Yeah, we're going to have a bad first quarter and we're going to have a bad second quarter. Whether we have a bad and that means a not so good year, uh, even if we recover. Yeah. It's hard to predict whether this is going to end up being, you know, a huge big thing, or if it's going to pass through and and eventually fade away. I mean, it, it's worse than the flu, but yeah. there's not not everybody dies. Oh, eighty percent of people have mild cases who get coronavirus, so, so they go away for two weeks and then they come yeah, back. Yeah, and, and so look, uh, last experience we had was in two thousand nine, H one N one, also known as swine flu. Okay, and you go back and look at what happened to the economy, and there's a V. Okay, it dropped and it, it came back up, and as a result, we've completely forgotten about this. <laughs> okay? Yeah, and it's all all and, we're, it's all and weren't quite prepared for this. Right. So the debate is always: Is it going to be a V or a U? Yeah. You know, and is, are we going to bump along the bottom for a while before you start to see a recovery? And it's hard to know because we don't know how big it's going to get. Right. Well, but you, but you, I mean, you asked the right question. The, the immediate impact, I think, clearly is in is in services. People are not traveling, so airlines, hotels are having a lot of difficulties. People are not going out to eat. People are staying at home. People that provide all those services, people who provide transportation services, uh, restaurant workers, and people. These are often, you know, low wage workers. Uh, they're the ones that are, that are going to get hurt the most. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you know is, comes to mind too is you know a lot of uh, big sporting events getting canceled. Yes, it's not the players that are going to get hurt so bad. It's not even the owners that are going to get hurt so bad. It's the people who work at the stadiums and the vendors and everybody yeah. that, that whole that whole infrastructure, which right. are all which is all services, all services. Yes, the for, uh, the the players can you know hang on to their multi million dollar contracts, and I think they'll, they'll be just fine. They'll be okay. Yes. Well, the taco truck may not do so well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no doubt, gentlemen. Thank you as always for all this insight. Um, we'll continue to monitor this situation as it relates to trade and keep on talking about it. So, thanks again. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.